0: You remember. If you came to Christ perhaps later in life, do you remember what it was like before you came to Christ? I came to Christ at about 15 years of age. Some of you obviously came to Christ very young. But if you came to Christ later in life, do you remember your life before, what it was like? Put your hand. Let me just get a little survey here. Some of us remember it well. If, uh, if you do, you know, if you're four and you trust Christ, it's hard to have sort of a debauchery of a life between zero to four. Uh, <laughs> But some, some maybe, yeah. But when you come to Christ, as I did in my teens, I left a pretty licentious, uh, drug-using, crazy lifestyle. Uh, and my coming to Christ was a major change in my life. And remembering what we were like, remembering those days, if you came to Christ later, is of some value. We have to be careful we don't go there and live in a place of shame and guilt and never move beyond that. But there is a healthiness to going back to that boundary, to remembering from where we have come and what Christ has done in our lives in a good way to remember we don't live that way anymore. We live differently now because we're in Christ. We have been in a series called The Walk of Wisdom. We began with four guest speakers, and then Bill and Lloyd and I chose passages that we have enjoyed personally, that we wanted to teach the concept of living wisely, living in wisdom from those passages. And a couple of weeks ago, I introduced you to Ephesians chapter 4 and 5, which has five times the word walk occurs in it. And we began looking at the first one, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which we have been called. Uh, we've been called out of a lifestyle to Christ, and we now represent a king. So you and I are to walk in a manner worthy of that calling, that we're now heirs of a king, heirs of a kingdom, illegitimate, throwaway children, that by grace, through faith, salvation, were adopted into an inheritance we could have never dreamt of and given eternal life with him. And as a result of that, we're to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which we have been called. Today, I want to look at another set of walks. There are five he uses in chapters 4 and 5. We pointed those out a couple of weeks ago. But I want us to look at this one, which really is walking away. Walking away from what we were. The paramount one to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which we've been called, but now we're to walk away. And look what he tells the Ephesian believers and what he tells you and me. Chapter 4 of Ephesians, beginning at verse 17. Walk away. Know what you were leaving, what you are leaving. Verse 17. So this I say, and affirm together with the Lord, that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. Paul begins insisting, imploring that this great importance, no longer walk the way the Gentiles walk. Walk in a manner worthy, now we're talking about no longer walk the way you used to walk. Ephesus was a culture that was steeped in every sexual perversion imaginable. They were licentious, they had idols that were innumerable, and through Acts and through Paul's writing and through first century documents. We know Ephesus was a a wicked, immoral, evil, covetous society. Everyone did what they wanted to do, what was right in their own eyes. In fact, it's a lot like the United States of America today. And I'm reminded of what Dr. Hendricks often told us. This is not what God's word would say if God was here. It is what God is saying because He is here. And what applies to the Ephesian believers applies to you and me in the exact same way. So he begins by this statement. It's a topic sentence. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. Look again at verse 17. Walk no longer as the Gentiles also walk. And the futility of their mind. And then he's going to explain that topic sentence in the verses that follow. Notice verse 18, being darkened in their understanding. Now we're talking about the way they're thinking, their understanding is dark. We're going to look at some other pictures f- for a moment. But this is a, a reminder. This is changing our mindset. We'll see this in great detail in this passage. It's not just changing our mind about something. It's changing our mindset. This, I believe, is the single tension in the spiritual life. How do we live the way Christ wants us to live in a carnal, physical world? The tension of the spiritual life is not just doing right things. It's not just behavior modification. The tension of the spiritual life is knowing God's Word and God's Spirit who indwells the believer and being submissive to His power to take the Word of God and transform us by His power. We cannot make our flesh any better. We're not polishing the brass rails on a sinking ship. We need Christ's power, His Spirit who indwells us, to do this. You cannot do this in the flesh. Yes, willpower and discipline and, and self-motivation are great things. It won't change you spiritually. It might get you out of bed and start it, start it in the morning might get you reading your Bible, but that in and of itself cannot change us. It requires Christ's Spirit who indwells us, and Paul's going to elaborate on this in this passage in a very helpful way, changing our mindset about how we live the spiritual life. Before we had a mindset, before we might sin and have a nagging guilt or shame or a conscience of some kind... But it's very different now once we've trusted Christ. Notice we lived in darkened understanding, in ignorance. Paul writes in a similar fashion in Romans 1.21, For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. I can go back to my before-I-knew-Christ days, And, uh, uh, you know, I used all kinds of drugs. And I'm here to tell you, I inhaled. And I held it as long as possible. I wanted the full effect of those drugs. And I used those drugs indiscriminately because I was escaping something. And most of the time, there was nothing in the back of my mind telling me this was wrong. I wanted to do those things. That's my sin nature. Coming to Christ, things begin to change. Now, look at how he describes this darkened walk. Look again at verse 18. Excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. Excluded from the life of God. We often hear the quip, ignorance is bliss. Uh, doesn't apply biblically or theologically. Ignorance is dangerous. Excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them and as a believer you and I read those words those words should be chilling to us that friends and family people we love are excluded from a life with God and it should also remind us from where we've come we're all dying we're all bound to die um we don't like talking about it, we don't like thinking about it, it's reality. Funerals populate our calendar enough to remind us we are all dying, it's inevitable. And much of our life is just dulling the pain of the inevitable, dulling the pain that we experience with injustice and all sorts of things that happen. And when we're darkened in our mind, all we see is, well, I better do what I want to do, enjoy, be true to myself, yada, 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 because in the end we all die anyway, so I may as well have fun and do what I want to do. My passion, who I am, be who I am, and all this sort of rhetoric that's so part of the American mindset today. But they're ignorant of God. And because of that, they're locked in death. Secondly, verse 18, the hardness of their heart. Again, perhaps you remember, before you came to Christ, your heart was hardened. I could do things, and it did not bother me. I could say very hurtful things, and it didn't bother me. I could lie, and it didn't bother me. And when our minds are darkened, when we live a lie... When we choose to sin because we want to, with no fear of consequences, not even that little conscience talking to us sometimes going, you probably shouldn't do this. You know better than this. Your mother wouldn't be happy. You might get caught. That's the worst we ever think or fear. In reality, our hearts become hardened. You know it. If you're a parent when you raise children, you see this very early in our kids' lives. When they're toddlers and they're going to do something and you tell them no and they give you that look, full intending on doing what you just said not to do. It's a delightful experience. (laughs) Depravity in your home, you see it right then and there. Don't do that and they smile and do it anyway. And you know right there, that's human nature. That's who we are. We're darkened, we're selfish. Our focus is hard. It's tragic when we see it in children and teenagers and college students. It's, it's incredibly tragic when we see adults do what they want to do because they don't care. They will do whatever they want to do. They'll choose to sin. They'll choose to lie. They'll choose to hurt other people. They'll choose injustice, and they don't care because they're darkened. They're hard in their heart. When I don't care about what God thinks, my heart is hard. When I don't care about what Christ cares about, your heart, my heart, is hard. A hard heart has no affection for God. A hard heart has no affection for Jesus. A hard heart is only concerned about self. Verse 19 we become callous. having become calloused, as if a hard heart's not bad enough, we become callous. Now, I believe these are a progression. You think of uh, men and women who play stringed instruments, they have to have a certain callus on their fingers. If you're a craftsman, a tradesman, if you're a runner, if you are a dancer, you've got to have a certain callus on your feet or you can't do that very long. And if you lay off running or lay off dancing for a while, lay off playing the guitar for a while, you have to rebuild a little bit or your feet will kill you, your fingers will kill you until you get a callus. What is a callus? A callus deadens pain. A callus deadens pain. And calluses are good things in the aforementioned stuff. But a calloused heart is a dangerous thing. Because what should pierce our heart, what should affect our mind, what should cause us to feel guilty, feel shame in a proper way, to say, am I doing the right thing? When we're hardened in our heart, then our hearts can become calloused and things don't bother us anymore. We're dead to that feeling. Dr. Paul Brand and Philip Yancey have written articles and books on the subject, uh, the gift of pain, the the gift nobody wants, um, and so forth. Phil's first book about uh, living with pain and extraordinary writings. Dr. Paul Brand worked with lepers, or what he preferred to call Hansen's disease, the disease that it's not contagious. It can't be transmitted. Hansen's, he was one of the leading physicians who understood it had to do with neuropathic pain reception. And that's why he wrote the book, The Gift of Pain because a leper uh, can be pushing a broom or shoveling uh, all day long, and he or she doesn't know a blister's developing, doesn't know to bandage or stop or put a glove on. They just keep working, and that blister becomes an abscess. That abscess ends up in losing fingers. They lose their toes. Many lepers will lose their hands and feet. They'll lose their eyesight because they don't know that there's something in their eye. They don't blink like you and I blink when we have a little irritation. And so they lose that pain ability. And he spent years trying to develop systems that would create pain in le- Hanson's disease feet. How do you make pain in their hand when they don't feel things that are hot that can burn them? So he calls it a gift of pain because you know when to stop. You don't want to put a glove on. You don't want to just change the position of your hand a little bit, working a rake in the yard too often. I swept out my uh, garage yesterday in about 35 seconds, and I started feeling hot spots. I'm such a wimp. I have hot spots on my hand. I have to move the broom a few times because I'll get a blister in a matter of moments because I'm such a wimp. If You do it all day long. You work with your hands. You have calluses. But a calloused heart is a dangerous thing because you no longer feel pain. 19, given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. The conclusion is that the Gentile way of life is obstinate, is stubborn. You're excluded from God. You're hardened in your heart toward God. You're calloused in your heart toward God. You don't care about this, and you're given over to practice sensuality. Practice here is an unusual word in the New Testament. Here it means a sustained interest in something. We pursue something because we have a sustained interest in it. Some of us have hobbies. Some of us could spend all day long and never tire on our hobby. That's a pursued interest. That's a, we think of practice like practicing the violin when we're a kid. Nobody, well, one out of what? A thousand liked practicing the piano or practicing the guitar or practicing the drums. Most of us hate the concept of practice. This practice means a sustained interest in something. And I look at my life, the one thing I have a sustained interest in that's never gone away is eating. (laughs) I could eat all day long, especially things that are supposedly bad for me. I just like to eat. I have this appetite. Probably you do, too. You don't meet many people that don't like to eat. Some might struggle with eating issues, but we like to eat. It feels good to put fat and carb and sugar and grease in my veins. Five guys every six weeks, whether they need it or not. It's a good prescription for everybody. Get that grease in there. What do we practice? What do we have a sustained interest in? Paul says their sustained interest is in every kind of impurity with greediness. It's not bad enough that the interest is ongoing is that we're greedy toward that insatiable greed, covetousness, immorality. Peter O'Brien writes, "...the indecent conduct already described was practiced with a continual lust for more. The pagan way of life was characterized by insatiable desires to participate in more and more forms of immorality. Ultimately, it becomes a vicious circle because new perversions must be sought in order to replace the old." This is why pornography doesn't satisfy. You don't look at pornography once. If pornography satisfied our sexual appetites, we'd look at it once and never again. But it's insatiable. And so it's more and more and more and more. Substances to give us a euphoric feeling to get away from the pain emotionally or whatever of life, they, they don't, one time isn't enough. I remember One of our children had their appendix taken out and um, they were given morphine and they were laying back in the bed and they said, I could get used to this stuff. (laughs) Takes the pain away. If you take it for the euphoric effect, you don't just take it once and go, oh, I felt good. You take it again and again. And what happens? You have to increase the kinds, the amounts, you experiment. Every Every sin in life is insatiable. And that should remind our mindset it cannot satisfy. Sin is an illegitimate means to a legitimate end. There are legitimate ways to have sexual intimacy, there are legitimate ways to live in a painful world, there are legitimate relationships that will satisfy in community and not degrade us into sin and immorality. But sin is a deception that if I sin, I'll get this satisfied. And the fact that it's insatiable proves. It never satisfies. And that's the cycle. Because new perversions must be sought to replace the old. Well, that's where we were called from. That's what we're to walk away from, Paul says. Remember, walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you were called. We're called to be representatives of Christ. We represent a king, an inheritance, forgiveness of sin, freedom from sin, freedom from the consequences of our sin. We're given a new life in Christ as a result of that Walk differently. Now he says, remember, walk away from you Ephesians, you middle Tennesseans. Walk away from the things that you were called out of. Now watch verse 20, the big change, the new self. But you, but you did not learn Christ in this way. If indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him, just as truth is in Jesus, that in reference to your former manner of life, that you lay aside the old self. Note the phrase, lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Mindset, remember, be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self. Verse 22, lay aside the old self. Verse 24, put on the new self which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Walk away, know what you've left behind, walk away, now we have the new self. Now notice the verbs, learned, heard, taught. Sounds like a schoolroom, doesn't it? Learned, heard, taught. We learn a subject. You might learn algebra, for example, and you learn the quadratic formulas, and you learn all these things, and you take tests, and you show that you've learned algebra. Learning in this context is more at knowing. We don't learn Christ. I I took a subject, and I took Christ 101 and 102, and now I know Christ. This is a relational knowledge. So when he begins in verse 20, you did not learn, you, you you don't know Christ in that way. You don't know him in the aforementioned sinful, callous, darkened ways. You've been called out of that. Secondly, heard. You paid attention to it. You understood it. We differentiate when a a person's listening versus hearing. And the differential is, do you understand what I've said? It can be an employee. It can be your husband, your wife, your child, a friend. You're talking to them or they're talking to you. You're not listening to a word they're saying. You just appropriately go, "Mm mm-hmm, oh, yeah, mm mm-hmm. You can can do that all day long. And you feign like you're listening. We're all experts at that, right? But if you listen and you hear, you understand something. You didn't learn Christ in that way. You know him. You heard him. And by the way, we hear him from the word, from the apostolic teachings we call our New Testament, the mind of God in print. And we've been taught not by him, but in him. And this is a relational construct here. Look at them. Learned, heard, taught. By the way, these are not imperative verbs. The best way to explain it would be these are positional relationships. We know Christ. We've heard him. We've listened to him. We understand him. And we know that we're being taught in him. He is teaching us. If you're a believer, his word, I hope and pray, is teaching you right now. Because we have to change our mindset. Now watch what he does. Verse 22, put off the old self. Verse 24, put on the new self. Put off the old, put on the new. Because of that corrupt, deceitful, uh, lustful, sensual lifestyle that we came from, we're to put that off, take those clothes off, put on a new self that is different than the old, but do not miss The motivation for this is not behavior modification. Look at what he says in verse 23, that you may be renewed, look, in the spirit of your mind. It is a mindset. It's a positional mindset. This is the tension of the Christian life. This is the tension of spiritual life. It's not just behavior modification. Don't do those things and now do these things. Everything's fine. That's legalism. And it fails all the time. Because you're always measuring yourself against this imperceptible scale that you've created. And you compare yourself to others who do worse things than you and others who are better than you. And so we're on this craziness of trying to be better or good or different or I'm not as bad as them. Erase that new mindset. The mindset is our minds have to be changed about this. We've heard, we've learned, we've been taught. We're in Christ. Put off the old and put on the new. And the way you put on the new is you have to change your mindset. Now watch how Paul develops this because it's very helpful. We are in a position with Christ because we learned, heard, and were taught him. Now, as a new way of life, our new self, watch what he says, how we live this in the new life. So we have walking away from, we have a new self. Now look what it looks like in the new life, verse 25. Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you, with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry, and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and do not give the devil an opportunity. He who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good so that he will have something to share with the one who has need. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need, so that it will give grace to those who hear. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice, be kind to one another, tender hearted, forgiving each other just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Now we have five imperative commands. Now we have these are things we're to do. Don't forget belief precedes behavior. We've got to have the mindset before we try to do something, or it's just behavior modification, it's just a checklist, it will not work. To know we, were, we learned, we were taught, we understood Him. To have the mind of Christ in us by His Word and His Spirit, now we get the commands. Now, for the Bible students among you who study in detail, these five imperatives have a formula. There's a negative statement, a positive statement and an explanation. I'm not going to show you on each one. Wouldn't Don't have the time. But there's a negative command, a positive construct, and then an explanation. The first one's easy to see. Lay aside falsehood. That's the negative one. Speak truth. That's the positive one. Why? Because we live in a community, if you will. So look again the language. Verse 22, lay aside. Lay aside falsehood. When my children were young, I would often uh, preach to them be glad you're not a preacher's kid often preach to them easily don't lie easily are truth tellers because i want their reputation to be a man or woman that people will always trust that what they say their yes is yes or no no they don't lie lay aside falsehood and speak the truth we live in a community we have to be truthful in that community This is an exhortation. If you have the mind of Christ, if you know what you are called from, not those passions, not those insatiable passions, you're called to Him. And the first one, he says, is lay aside false. Interesting, that leads a list. Don't lie. Don't lie. Secondly, be angry, but do not sin. Be angry, but do not sin. Christians uh, often have questions about, well, what does it mean to be angry? Don't, don't, don't let the sun go down your anger. I mean, how, how do we do that? Well, a quick primer. Uh, a, God is angry a lot in the Bible. He's angry at the Israelites. At times, he's going to destroy his own people. Remember, Moses intercedes. He tells Moses to move away, and Moses essentially throws himself at God's mercy and says, don't destroy these people. He says, I'll, I'll raise you a new people. It goes, no, and so forth. God's angry at their idolatry. God's angry at their penchant for intermarrying with pagan nations. He's angry throughout Scripture. In the New Testament, Christ is angry many times with the scribes and Pharisees. When he turns over the tables in the temple complex, the money changers who are extorting and abusing the privilege of taking money from that worshiper and giving them uh, unsatisfactory, less satisfactory animals for their sacrifice. He's angry many times. But it's a righteous anger. The way to differentiate between a righteous anger and we might say an immoral anger is a righteous anger has nothing to do with my sin, but for an injustice or something that is wrong. Think about when you get angry, when I get angry. More times than not, I I call anger a secondary emotion, meaning uh, what's really going on is something else and my anger is going to keep you away from the issue. So if I'm afraid of being caught, if someone is caught in a lie, they blame other people and they get angry at you. Why? Cuz no one wants to be close to an angry person. So if you yell and scream at your husband, your wife, your your worker, your coworker, your employee, your your child, if you yell and scream at them, you're keeping them away, right? If they're mad at you, they're yelling to keep you away cuz something's wrong. I can't address it. I can't deal with it. I mean, You know, every parent's fantasy when something goes wrong in the family, when you got the kids lined up, go, Who did this? Father of mine, I did. (laughs) I will not tell a lie. It wasn't my brother or sister. I did it. I own it. I was the one who did it. No one else is innocent. Punish me. I'll happily do whatever you said, oh, Father of mine. (laughs) No child says that. Few adults say it. Anger keeps you at bay. Anger also betrays, because when you're in trouble, when you're lying at work, when you're lying to your mate, when you're lying to a friend, you're afraid of being caught. You're afraid of being found out. Didn't the list lead with lay-aside falsehood? Tell the truth? Just as you parent your children, we've always parented ours. If you come clean, the consequences are always lighter than if we find out later that you lied. Lay aside falsehood. Be angry, but don't sin. It's my observation that some of the most angry people are people who are deeply unforgiven there's stuff in their soul, there's stuff in their heart, there's lies, there's deceptions, there's all kinds of stuff going on, and they're the most angry people on the planet. And to try to peel those layers back, interesting, one of the first questions God asks man is, why are you angry? Because an unforgiven sinner can respond repentant or in anger. A little bit of a simplification, but that is the point. Verse 28, do not steal but work. Not only should you work with your own hands, I love the passage, but if you work, you're able to share with others. Now, a little sidebar here, um, we're talking in national debate right now about minimum wages. Some areas are all up in arms about minimum wages should be uh, very high fine conversation. Great for them to do that. What I find striking is the entitlement mindset of our culture is so permeated. You should pay me a lot of money for doing very little. That's really what it's about. Uh, Entry-level jobs are called entry-level jobs for a reason. That's how you enter the job market. And rather than saying, you should pay me more for doing the least work on the planet with no education or training, and I deserve $15 an hour for doing that, show me an employee who says, I'll work for minimum wage. And they work hard and they take extra hours and they clean up and they take initiative and they're kind and they do what their boss asks and they obey him or her and they're, they're a, a sterling employee. They won't be an entry-level minimum wage worker for very long. America's sick with this entitlement thing. You know what we deserve? Nothing. We deserve nothing on the backs of anyone. This is biblical, not American government. We deserve hell is what we deserve. That's what we earned. And by grace through faith, not of yourselves, a gift of God that no one can boast we're given an eternal gift called free eternal life, a free gift. And our life then is a thank you back to God, willingly, readily, eagerly. And our culture has so ingrained us that we're entitled to. Sure, we help people. In fact, the Bible even says right here, "Work with your own hands, so that what you can share with someone who has a real need." It's not against helping people. All right, off the podium, back off the pulpit, back to the podium. Let no unwholesome word, but edification. The word "unwholesome" literally means rotten. It's a great word. Don't use rotten words, but rather edify. Now. Cindy and I were talking about this in recent days about, and a part of it, I don't think we're prudes or puritanical too much, Uh, but um, I find it interesting how in the last few years, coarse language has become so common within the body of Christ. It's it's like we're edgy or we're cool because we can drop the F-bomb or we can say certain things. It's we're cool. Uh, many places in Scripture talk about coarse jesting. This one in particular, no no rotten word, but edification. By the way, the Bible never just says stop doing something. Stop doing that. It always gives us the energy to do something different. Don't use that language, but rather edify. Your mother may have said like-minded, if you don't have something good to say, right. um, good to revisit those axioms. I'm guilty of it. I can say some pretty snarky things. That's an area God's been working on me deeply on is my snarky, sarcastic, edgy, cutting uh, way of saying things. Last few months when I have coarse language on a Facebook post or a tweet, I block the user. I'm not going to try and deal with it on the social platform, but I'm just going, you know, I'm not going to do this. If that's the way they want to be, they're gone. But when all the culture around you is using that language, Cindy and I were talking about, you know, when it gets in your brain, when you start thinking those terms, where where did you start thinking those terms? Because you started hearing them a lot, or you started reading them a lot, or you see them on the programs, you hear them on the programs you watch. And we've become immune, we've desensitized ourselves to them. Rather edify. Which one of us doesn't appreciate an edifying word? Great job. Thanks for taking that initiative. It's incredible how compassionate you are. Thanks for helping. Thanks for serving. Thanks for being a great mom. Thanks for being a great dad. Thanks for going the extra mile for me this week. Which one of us doesn't long to hear those words? Jesus speaking in Matthew 12, 34, you brood of vipers speaking to the scribes and Pharisees. How can you, being evil, speak that which is good? For, listen, Out of the mouth speaks that which fills the heart. That's where the coarse jesting and the rough language, the rotten, unwholesome words, that's where it's it's more troublesome than just being cool or edgy, is it's what's in our hearts. And if we're around it a lot, we hear it a lot, and it starts coming out a lot, there's a problem. Let no unwholesome word proceed. These are exhortations. These are commands. Everyone needs edification. No one needs our coarse language Fifth and last exhortation that is a command, an imperative verb, is put away. Verses 31 and 32, and here he lists six vices that I will not unpack. Bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander, and malice. And then, by contrast, be kind, tender-hearted, forgiving each other. Why? Because we have been forgiven. I have a dear friend who's, a, you know, the, the DISC profile, all kinds of instruments out there, but the DISC, the D-I-S-C, the D is the dominant person, headstrong individual, a lead, follow, get out of my way kind of person, no, no care about people's feelings, results-oriented. We call them high Ds. I have a friend who's a, a real high D. I mean, real high D. And um, I have watched God's Spirit work in that person's life, and they're one of the most kind, tender-hearted people I know. And every time I'm around them, I'm shocked at how kind and tender they are toward people that sometimes are really foolish. And I go, I want that kind of transformation. I want Christ to work in my life to see people kindly, with tenderness. Not, not that sometimes we don't deal with issues, sure. But rather than anger and malice and slander and wrath and bitterness, be kind, be tenderhearted. People are hurt. We're wounded. We're all limping at times, right? My father introduced me to photography when I was very young, about sixth grade, and uh, we had black and white cameras, bellows cameras and 124 matte lenses and uh, film and so forth. And we developed them and we developed the negatives in a dark room and made black and white prints and we had a makeshift closet in our house that we made into a dark room. uh, I wasn't great on the uh, this side of the camera lens, but I really enjoyed the development processing side of the of the business, if you will. And so, by uh, my sophomore year in high school, I worked uh, part time at a photo lab, and I worked in complete dark rooms. I worked in the black and white dark room. Certain high sensitivity films. We had uh, color labs, custom lab. was a small custom lab, very busy custom lab. And uh, I was pretty proficient at learning how to do those things. And by the way, I started at minimum wage. And uh, so I go to work there and uh, they, they give me an opportunity to learn. I learn things and I, I, I learned how to work in total darkness. It gave me a, that much of an appreciation for what it must be to be blind. It also taught me that you can learn. I worked in complete dark rooms with machinery and technology going on as well as hand things where you're having to unroll film canisters and clip them the right side out and put them in tanks and know how to move them without damaging them. Working machines that had big armature on them that if your arm was in the wrong place wrong time, you would, you would break your arm and you had to learn to work in a totally dark environment. Once that film was processed and uh, stabilized or stopped, we might say, then you could look at the negatives. When you went to the print side of the industry, you took those negatives and you printed a test print. You had a safe light. You could see a little bit, but you were working with a negative image, and you project that negative image on, let's say, an 8 by 10 piece of photographic paper. Then you take it to the processor, and uh, when it comes out, it's got to be developed and then fixed or stopped the development. And then at a certain point, you can take it out into the light. So all that's done in a very dim environment. And then you took it to what we, today we would call um, color balancing or white light, and so when you you took that print out into a white room, we had built it was a special booth with these lights, and you dropped your prints on it. Then you saw the work you were seeing dimly in the dark room. And the color corrector would look at flesh tones and greens, and he would say plus two cyan, minus four magenta. more density, less contrast. He'd mark on it with a grease pen and back to the lab you went and you printed your paper again and went through the process. I never, ever tired of watching that print emerge in the developer. It was always a, a magical thing to watch that piece of paper take on an image. I was pretty good at it. There were men and women that were geniuses at it and nobody got it right the first time. Because you're working in a dark environment and you can't, really see the image until you take it out and put it in the bright white light. And then you see how off you are. Out of focus. Wrong color that you go back and correct. We're to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which we've been called. And in order to do that, part of that involves walking away from a former life where we were dark. And no matter how good you are in the darkness, it won't work. But when the white light is on our lives and we see our sin and imperfection and what we need color corrected and reprinted and reprocessed it is the work of Christ's spirit in you. He loves you. He's not mad at you. He wants you to be transformed And conformed into his image, not your and my image of an American Christian. Into his image. Remember the walk from where you came. You walk no longer in darkness. You now walk as children of light. Father, help us as we try to reframe our mindset, what it means to live the spiritual life. It's it's ticklish, it's complicated, it's confusing for us at times. Thank you that your word is so wonderfully clear, a gold mine of information. Not just data and knowledge, but the person of Christ. And we long for your spirit as we're exposed to your word to indwell us and empower us to be different. To grow and mature and to walk in wisdom. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week.